millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Most of the time in this podcast, I've been talking to business owners competing in the corporate space, familiar space. This week, I'm talking to Stephanie Woolard, who has founded a number of not-for-profit organizations primarily focused on supporting women in Nepal. Her first organization is called Seven Women. She sells handmade goods produced by marginalized women in Nepal, disabled women, single moms, widows, and they are raising money for their communities. Alongside this is the other business, and that's called Hands-On Development, which organizes and runs cultural tours to Nepal, showcasing ethical and sustainable tourism, which I want to talk a lot more about with Steph. I want to talk about the challenges she faces running and growing these not-for-profits, which I'm sure are similar, same sort of problems as any business owner experiences from day to day. So let's get into it. Stephanie Willard, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you. Now, not-for-profit, explain to our listeners what that means. So not-for-profit organisations are organisations that are there to serve the community and that put all their profits back into the community. That doesn't mean you don't get paid a wage for it or you don't take – do you take a wage out of it? I You've started, got to live. I started this year yeah. um, after 11 years of uh, working in Seven Women, started taking a wage from Seven Women. So, yeah, it's a hard slog for a lot of not-for-profits that start, you know, by drawing together their resources. And in the beginning, obviously, it's hard to draw a wage immediately or a liv- livable wage. Uh, but after it gets up and running, it's um, it's possible. And I – believe that not-for-profits, you know, should take a wage for their work because totally. it's really, really important work for the community. Well, if they don't take a wage, they won't do it and then you won't have a not-for-profit. Exactly. Which means that people who <laughs> benefit from it won't be getting the benefit. So tell me about seven, well, I'd like to know the starting up of seven women in Nepal. What, who, are, who are the seven women? What, what's, what's the relevance <laughs> of that? Uh, so I, I was a very curious teenager and after high school, I wanted to visit a developing country to see poverty because I was really um, affected by a trip that my parents took me, my brother and sister on up the centre of Australia and down the east coast. It was a six-week caravanning trip and we stayed in a number of different Aboriginal communities and at night times, you know, sometimes it'd be screaming and, and that's really my first exposure to issues in, in a community. So that sparked an interest in me and um, I really wanted to work in Indigenous communities after high school. And lived in a few, but couldn't see a way that I could get involved. So my next um, mission was to go and visit a developing country. And that was, um, you know, through a family friend who suggested the Duke of Edinburgh to go on a, one of these trips to Nepal. Mm-hmm. So I signed myself up and with 30 other people and we, we travelled to Nepal to do some, you know, volunteer work and help build some schools in two different communities. And then... Yeah, just was really moved and inspired by the the poverty that's so you know out there in public, but also the generosity of spirit of the people, and got asked back to go as a, a leader. So I was uh, co-leading groups of architects from Melbourne to Nepal, and stayed on after the group left to head back to Australia, and was walking down the back streets of Kathmandu one day and saw a very disabled woman who was walking ahead of me with two heavy bags, and she was headed for a tiny tin shed. Um, in the corner of the street and when I kind of popped my head into the shed there were seven disabled women that were living and operating out of this tiny tin shed and that's that's where the name comes from, seven women. They all had 
various physical disabilities from birth or from having an accident and not having enough money to to get proper treatment or getting an infection and um, and that resulting in you know a leg being amputated or an arm being amputated and through hearing about the stigma that's attached to disability in Nepal I um, yeah kind of was urged to act and support them in some way urged by them or urged in yourself <laughs> in myself um, it was it was very um Sad to hear there was luckily one woman in the tin shed called Sangita who spoke broken English and she was telling me some of the stories of these women who had come from very remote villages in Nepal and had been, you know, hidden out in the back rooms of their houses to hide hide them from the rest of the community because their parents didn't want the community to know they had a disabled child because it would stigmatise them. So there's a widely held belief in Nepal that if you're disabled in this life, you are evil in a past life. And so they're very socially isolated. Right. Well, there's going to be a lot of disabled people in the future life if that's the case, especially mm. in America. Um, well, I can think of one in particular, um, one particular individual. But, um, uh, okay, so you you were inspired and or motivated by what you saw and or experienced um, and you decided to make make do something about it. So what does seven women do? So Seven Women primarily, I suppose, empowers disabled and marginalised women in Nepal through education, skills training and employment. So upskilling them. So, you know, when I first met the initial Seven Women, I saw that they had ability. They were able to use their hands and, you know, their their brains were okay so they could learn new skills. So they started producing products and that was the first six years of Seven Women and manufacturing business. But what we realised was that if they can't, read and write and count they can't you know measure the products properly so we were getting a lot of faulty products and um you know it was was really difficult to drum up a market here to sell the products when they were kept coming um incomplete or you know things falling off the sides of them let me just go back a bit though because you've found these seven women who have capability um and i I guess to make things in a craft sense like Mm. we're talking about I don't know what, what sort of things we're talking about. Products, products. So, um, children's like felt products, knitted products, um, silk, you know, dressing gowns and pajamas. Right. Okay. So, you've got these products that they have the ability to make. Um, no doubt they make it very cheap. Um, and uh, let's put about, let's put quality aside for a second. Um, you decided that I'm going to take these products and I'm going to get these people to manufacture these products that are inexpensive price and I'm going to take them to Australia and I'm going to sell them to who? Where Where was the demand or the that you identified for these so products? So I, I had no idea at first what I was doing and no idea who I was going to sell the products to. So uh, basically it started with the seven women and they I thought they can make their own designs and of course people will want to buy them because, you know, they're so beautiful and they've they've made them handmade and fair trade. So I packed the initial 12 products in my suitcase and it was, you know, hot pink poncho and fluorescent yellow knitted handbag and took off back to Australia and thought, um, great, now how am I going to sell them? So I had a viewing in my family lounge room, invited family and friends around to to see the products and, you know, laid them out nicely. And um, everyone basically said, you know, here's a donation, but keep the products. Yeah. So um, I thought, they're mad. Like, how do they not appreciate these products? So I but thought, I'll, I'll, yeah. It's not about appreciation, though. I mean, because on that base, they're buying for charity, as opposed, which means they, exactly. they're happy to give yeah. the money. Yeah. Um, re- what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to work out here is how does the business seven women? Um, when did you? At what stage did you work out what people will buy, and how did you get that produced? Mm. So I took them then to my university at the time, Latrobe, and set up a little market stall. And same thing, no took one the products. Anything. Yeah, took the products. Um, no sales on the first market stall day and that, that's when I realised, oh, these don't suit the Australian market. I'm going to have to do a bit of research into this and look into um, what will sell here and it you know, turns out that people here like uh, don't like such colourful products. It's more, um, you know, the pashmina scarves that we sell the most now are grey and neutral colours. So Dusty um, pink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all those ones. Um, uh, salmon and, mm. yeah, so um, that that's when... I did a bit of googling and found these hand puppets, which were the next um, the next big project, producing sets of hand puppets. And I thought maybe I can sell them. What's to a hand puppet? A hand puppet. Oh, it's an actual puppet. Uh, an actual puppet. Right. <laughs> the kids or yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, we did a few, you know, farm set 
jungle set of them and um, a bird set. And then we had a lot of complications with, um, you know, the Australian birds like the cockatoo. I ordered 200 of those in a first batch and they came then to Australia all missing their beaks. And I thought, how on earth did the women not put the beak on the cockatoo? And then I realised the photo I'd sent them had a black background and the beak was actually camouflaged in the in the photo. So, And, of course, they've got no idea what a cockatoo is. And so slowly we were able to design products that were really um, attractive to the Australian market and that's when we really took off in terms of revenue and sales and um, started to be able to build a proper centre for the women in Nepal. And at what point did you move beyond seven women actually doing this? So <clears throat> how'd, you, how'd you roll it out? to get, How many women do it now, for example? So now there's over 5,000 women that have been educated, trained and employed. Um, there's, there's over 1,000 that are employed through our manufacturing business and we've branched out into um, a hospitality uh, training college, which um, does cooking classes for tourists that come through the centre. Okay, but um, what would you say would be your volume now, the dollar volume in Australia? What would you sell into Australia? Yeah, so we, we do like probably, you know, 15 cargo loads a year and sell to about 120 shops. So, um, yeah, last year was, you know, about 100,000 that we do in products. and But but the last four years we've been really trying to, um, you know, wind down the product side of the business and um, upscale Nepal to start, generating local income and that's what the cooking class has given us so so but you've got five thousand five thousand women mm. yeah so obviously they're not all going to run cooking classes mm. um so yeah you still want and the money they make is probably incredibly valuable to them like a hundred bucks to them is a lot of dough mm. um so you're i just want to get back to the what you're exporting or importing mm. into australia um so who went and saw all the shops who sell these things? Are they craft shops or are they shops in Byron Bay or mm. I mean, who's selling this stuff? Yeah, so a lot of them are um, just, you know, we do the gift fairs. So that exposes us to a lot of shop owners, yeah. both, you know, people that are interested in fair trade and ethical wares, but also the mainstream. So it's it's a whole different range of shops that we sell to. Right, so and best-selling item, Pashmina. Um, yeah, they are really scarves. popular actually, mm. the pashmina scarves and, and the silk dressing gowns that the women make. Silk dressing gown, okay. And, uh, mm. uh, and does everybody, how does it, how do you work out what they earn? Who bargains with, uh, one of the seven women or one of the 5,000 yeah. women? Who, who, who sits down and says, look, I'll give you $10 for that. Mm. Who does that? Mm. So we based it first on the minimum wage of the government, which has been increasing every year. In, in, in Nepal? In Nepal. And also just through the women's stories and sitting down with them and helping them do doing their budgeting and learning about that. We've got a really good grasp on what women need to thrive and to be able to not only cover their basic expenses, but um, start saving to start their own businesses. So not not... You know, obviously, not all the women that come through the centre work for Seven Women. We don't want that. We want to really um, empower and incubate. You know, support them to incubate their own businesses, and then support them in whatever way we can. So, if a woman wants to um, go back to her village and grow, you know, mandarins or oranges, we can buy them for the cooking school and support her that way. Okay, explain the cooking school to me then. So the cooking school is... Is that part uh, of Seven Women? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's we've renovated a shed out the back of our main headquarters and um, basically we, we've partnered with some of the main tour companies in Nepal, including my own. So I've got my own tour company and bring groups and they do cooking classes at the centre. So it's 35 US dollars a cooking class and that funds hospitality training for marginalised women. So when I, if I go to Nepal, um, mm. I book into a cooking class mm. in... in with seven women, and yep. uh, I learned how to cook Nepalese-style yep. food, is, yep. which mm. is a little bit like Indian food, I guess, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Curry and rice. Yeah, curry and rice. Yeah, okay. So, and I pay 35 bucks, what, for the day or for a couple of days? Uh, so, it's it's two to three hours. So, people get a tour of the centre, and that's all about, you know, social enterprise and the situation of women in Nepal, and, um, and then the, the cooking class kind of teaches you how to do the curry and rice or the momos, Nepali dumplings. So it's it's um what we had in mind when we started that was to hook into the tourist market, which is um you know eight percent of the GDP. So it's it's huge. It's about hundred thousand tourists that come through Nepal each year, and um, provide them with you know everyone's looking for an authentic, real experience when they travel to Nepal, um, as well as trekking, and yeah, generate and support the growth of our charity for great impacts. How do you get that? How do you get the awareness? 
How of do you the cooking t- school. Yeah, how do people know about it? Well, I just um, we just thought let's partner with the main operators because that's you know they're doing their own marketing then for the cooking the tourism school. operators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so they bring groups. We're having groups every day come through the centre of you know two people to up to twenty five people. Yeah, because it, I mean, I, I guess no matter where you go in the world, you wouldn't mind learning how to cook their food, if you're, assuming mm. you like their food. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't mind learning how to cook their food and uh, take a little bit of the trip home because mm. it's sort of a great reminder. Mm. So you, uh, what's interesting about Seven Women, you've just gone through to, with me, um, it's obviously a charity and it's actually there for the benefit of um, people in Nepal, but you've gone through a, a typical business. Um, so you've identified where the demand is um, and what in terms of product and or service. Um, you've pivoted a little bit from product into more service. Mm-hmm. Um, you've worked out how to market the business without spending too much money. That's probably giving brochures and leaflets to the tour operators because that's the, the front line um, in terms of tourists arising in Nepal or tourists being sold a package. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do when I get there, apart from trekking? Um, so you've, you've actually employed all the usual business tenants of any business, just that the shareholders are the beneficiaries of this. The, yeah. That's the, the the not-for-profit people, the people who you're going to send money to. So I presume, do you make profit? I mean, is it, I mean, do you make a profit? I mean, not you, but does a business make profit? In other words, yeah. there's money there to send to somebody? Yeah, yeah definitely. So that, that was <clears> the whole kind of aim in the beginning that we'd make profits and that that would go into seed funding new projects and enterprises and also the programs that we run. Like microloans? Uh, like microloans, we, we, we do that, but we start with um, education and basic literacy in remote villages. So we work in six different villages and that's really where it starts for women to yeah. to learn how to read and write and even just to, to write their own name gives them a huge boost of confidence. So In what language? In their uh, language? In, well, actually, in some of the villages we work in, it's not even Nepalese, the national language. It's the um, the Mongolian dialect or, you know, depending on where they live. Right. It's a, it's a completely different dialect. So for them to learn, um, you know, a bit of that and then Nepalese is really empowering for them. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, uh, how many people now in the business? I mean, it's obviously not just you now. You kept mm. you started saying I, then you started going to we. So. <laughs> There's, All entrepreneurs say yeah, we. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How um, many people are there? So there's there's a great team. Got a got an amazing team in Nepal, which makes the work possible. So there's um, about twenty uh, managers that Australian work. Australian or uh, no? All Nepalese right. in Nepal, and you know that's its own structure. So it's registered and got a board behind it. And in Australia, we've always had around fifty volunteers that have helped at any one time. Right. In you know admin, finance, sales, marketing. So um, we've had huge support in Australia and. A, a great board to back us up as well. It just, I mean, one of the complexities of not for profit is that um, you're a young woman, but you have to be able to live. I mean, you can't mm. you can't become like a Nepalese person yourself, mm. sort of being on the breadline all the time. Mm. Uh, one of the big um, arm wrestles is uh, how do I pay myself, mm. and when do I pay myself, and how much to pay myself? Mm. What am I worth? Um, how do you deal with that and who makes that decision in this business? Yeah, so I, um, for 11 years, uh, worked without a wage. So it's like, been going for 11 years? Yeah, 11 years now. Right. Um, so um, I, I always kind of started off thinking I never thought of a wage and um, it you know, it was through all the challenges, never even thought of you know a wage. I thought I'll always work separate and I'll just kind of build this on the side. What but, did you do? So I did, you know, heaps of odd jobs, worked for Air Mauritius for a few years and, you know, did a, did a travel course and worked for them. And um, then I worked, you know, hospitality industry, I had five or six jobs at one stage, just casual jobs here and there. And then I, um, at the, about the six year mark, I thought I'm going to have to, you know, either leave or, or get a job or create a job. So um, I had people coming over to Nepal with me every year, every every trip to see seven women and I thought maybe there's something in this. Maybe I can create a travel company that gives people really authentic and real um, experiences like an immersion into the country and also bring about awareness because I was also doing a lot of public speaking and a lot of people didn't know what fair trade was or, you know, ethical consumption or just the impacts of our buying power on producers. And that's something I was really fortunate to see and and unfortunate to see. I've I've visited a few sweatshops and seen the impacts of that as well. Um, And 
yeah, also just to be able to travel and have a great experience but make a difference at the same time. Yeah, so, so that's when I started the tour company. <clears throat> so who pays you, the tour company or the charity? So the tour company. Yeah. Um, and what's and the tour company called? Hands-on development. Right. Yeah. So, so it's actually a, a tour company. In other words, it's a, a tour guide or a ranger's – it's a travel agency or what's that So mean? it's a it's a tour company. So I employ um, four people on the ground to run that and um, bring groups, school groups and university groups. And it's a subject for um, students at uni to come and do the the 10-day cultural tour. But in Nepal? So, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can actually do a course. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so it's cool. So it's an elective. It's a humanities so yeah. subject for yeah. courses that require those. Yeah, it's called those, Challenging yeah. Global Perspectives. Okay, so you've presented to the university a, uh, a course, yeah. a, a non-core subject. Uh, so yeah, An elective. Yep, yeah, exactly. So and, uh, but in order to do it, you go to Nepal over a 10-day period and do put up, you know, probably put in 100 hours or whatever the required yeah. amount of hours are. And you run those courses. Those tours, yeah, I run those tours, but uh, we've trained up staff on the ground that can run tours independently of me now. So, really looking forward to scale them up soon. And uh, is it popular? Uh, yeah, it's good. So it's growing. I, I did a master's in Sweden for two years, so it kind of stopped during that period. That was a, a rotary scholarship. Masters in what? In peace and conflict research in at Uppsala University in Sweden. So. It paused during that time and really looking forward to kind of kick-starting it to the next level this year. I've always been fascinated by um, individuals like yourself who do courses at university who are, who are you, you know, you would consider as a non-core commercial course, for example, the one you did your master's in. What you do with your undergrad in? International development. Okay, international development, which, you know, like if someone asked me, you know, I'm I have a role at University of New South Wales as a professor, but if someone asked me what is that course that you just talked to me, I couldn't tell them what it means. Um, mm. um, and I, well, I couldn't, and I, and I don't, I don't mean it's disrespect, disrespectful, I mean it more in an ignorant mm. sense. Um, um, and I wouldn't be able to tell you how you, you, you commercialise it, in other words, how you make a living out of it, or how you, yeah, a living, a satisfactory living for the person, everyone's mm. got a different value level. Um, and and he, But right in front of me here is an example of someone who's done that, um, mm. and turned it into a whole life experience and a wage. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter where the bulk of the prosperity dividend goes, whether it goes to you personally, whether it goes to a whole lot of individuals, but it is gainful employment. Mm. It's still gainful. Mm. Um, and and I'm, I find it, it's, to me, it's fascinating to to finally have met someone who's, who's who has done that, who's doing it and has done it. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of people because they're just not in my milieu. Like mm. I, I don't sort of mix that crowd. I mean, mm. I'm very closeted in that. No, that sounds bad. I'm not closeted. <laughs> I'm definitely not coming out of closet. But but I'm very sort of enclosed in what I do um, and uh, to some extent. And, and therefore, I, I have a large amount of ignorance in this in this part of the in this part of the world, which I found fascinating when Hugh, our producer, was, said that you were coming along. Mm. Um, I, I, I presume that. There is a large number of people doing this anyway already. That I mean, surely places like Nepal, I'm sure it's the same in India, parts of India, I'm sure it's probably all around the world. South America would be for sure Africa. Mm. There'd be lots of this going on. Is that right? Yeah, there's a lot of um, lot of different organisations, and I I agree with you about the the university subject. I think it's really valuable to, and that, that's why I started the tour company as well. Because when I was at uni, I had the hands-on experience of actually having gone to Nepal and developing something alongside learning about international development. And um, otherwise, it's really hard to, you know, file it somewhere in your brain. What, what, what you know, how does this relate in reality? What's the to, practicality to what of it Exactly. So I saw a lot of value in um, other people being able to experience what I'd experienced in Nepal and then started the tours and pitched them at universities um, to give students that theory, but also hands-on. And I think, you know, because these subjects are really important for people to learn about these topics, but having a subject called international development that has no clear you know, what does what, it mean? What is your career pathway after this is really challenging and it's not attracting the amounts of students um, such as other courses that do. So, um, but, but, yeah. do you think, but do you think, but what sets you aside from other people? Like, I don't know, let's say there's 100 people do it a year. But what sets you aside? Could you tell me what sets you aside? Do you think, I mean, do you have a natural entrepreneurial flair in you? And where does, if so, where does it come from? 
Yeah, I think um, my my whole family is has gone down the entrepreneurial route, except for my little sister. She's a primary school teacher, uh, but my yeah, my dad's always been an entrepreneur. He's a, he's an engineer, and I've kind of grown up with that, and grown up seeing my dad create a very successful business. But he's not, you know, he's not into marketing in a big way or marketing himself. But he's an engineer. He's an engineer, <laughs> exactly. He's he's very well respected in the industry and been very um, ethical. Uh, so that's been a great role model for me to learn that actually you can be ethical and have a very successful business and um, have that integrity. So, so that's I think that's where it comes from. You know, we had a lot of discussions around the dinner table about business and um, progressing his business. So um, that's where that comes from. But I'm I'm very I'm a very hands-on person. So I'm an action woman. I, I don't like talking too much without doing. So I think that's kind of what launched me into action when I first met the seven disabled women and saw them so, you know, cut off by society and just thought, this is, you know, is it ridiculous. out of pity? Is, did you, I want to, I've just pity. been digging. <laughs> I mean, yeah, is it out of pity? Or, um, I mean, is it out of, I mean, it, I mean, uh, lots of drivers here, I mean, potential drivers, is it out of pity or, uh, I mean, are you Catholic and therefore have guilt or, I mean, because you had a better upbringing or is it, um, or did you make the entrepreneurial decision because you thought, no, I can make a difference here, and no, I can actually do it this way, blah blah blah? Or you know, did, did... I think it was just out of like, um, this is really unjust. Like you know, just because of the way these women look, that is just you know unfair. Unfair. So you have, so, so do you have a, a a very heightened sense of unfairness and or fairness? Yeah, I do. I think of, I think my mum's kind of encouraged that, mum and dad, in in developing that in me from a very young age. You know what is right and what is wrong and. So I, I, you know, I've always spoken out if I've seen something that's not quite right. Could we? Could I ask you? Because that's an interesting thing you just touched on. Then, how old are you? Do you mind asking? Thirty-three. Thirty-three. You're young. So, can I ask? Well, you're young but experienced. Can I ask you before we go to the break? And I think this is an important point to ask you: is uh, you said right or wrong, um, and that's uh, around a moral position. Um, is it is that uh, were they just words you use, or was that in particular use those words, or would it be better to say fair and unfair, which is more an ethical issue? Mm. Which one is a moral ethics? Yeah, I think I think fair and unfair, just and unjust, um, which is to me that means uh, what causes suffering uh, to people for no for no reason, like just because these women, you know, had that physical appearance, they were um, really ostracised by their community. Yeah, so it's and, more unfairness. It's yeah, the ethics yeah. of it. Yeah, as yeah. opposed to right and wrong. Right and wrongs, you know, black and white. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, more, more kind of just and unjust. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's it's more about the the uh, ethics of it as opposed to the morality of it. Exactly. Because it's, morality is a bit of a fungible thing, and uh, everyone has different views. Totally. Yeah. Um, and depends on which religion. A whole lot of things influence it, I guess. Um. All right. Well, I got to go to a break, and uh, we're going to come back, and I want to explore this stuff a bit more. Welcome back to The Mentor, Stephanie. Thanks, Mark. Do you, call, you get Stephanie or Steph? Either. Either's fine. Okay. Well, Steph, you found a number of not-for-profits supporting women in Nepal. I, to be honest with you, this sounds, um, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I've never really met anybody who has done that. Um, so it's a first for me and it's uh, quite enlightening for me to sit here listening to how you have done this. Um, I had uh, many, many, many years ago when I was working in India, I had... Uh, a similar um, um, vision that I wanted to help as part of another business. I wanted to help a, a not-for-profit um, organisation which was uh, looking after uh, people who lived in a certain part, Dharamasala, a certain part of India. Um, but the GFC intervened and killed the business in India, so I oh, no. quickly exited. Um, but irrespective of that, I'm, I, I'm actually very curious about the stuff we're talking about. Uh, and in a business sense, because there's no point doing it where you just throw money at it all the time because mm. that's sort of like um, owning a boat, you know, eventually it sinks. Mm. Um, so, you know, like yeah, Great you, metaphor. you can't keep doing it. Uh, you, mm. It's got to stand on its own two feet. And if you walk away from the business for some reason, the business is still going to continue on without you. So part of the game here is building something that's sort of bulletproof. Mm. Um, what are the problems that you've encountered getting it to where it is today? I think that's a really important point because I think a lot of, um, you know, we're, we are a charity, we're registered as a charity and we give the profits back to, into it, the programs, but we've always, you know, always began with a 
business sense and wanted it to be a win-win and also you know in terms of the women's self-esteem if they're producing a product and getting paid for that they're actually contributing to that uh, the the you know bettering their own lives so it puts the ability with them rather than dependency on the donor which was me at the time or you know the person that's helping them rather than uplifting them so I and and thankfully I kind of started off like that because I'd seen a lot of uh, organizations that had gone you know down the wrong track of corruption because they were relying on donors and funders so they instead of kind of going in a straight line towards their vision they were zigzagging and following the the agendas of the funders and really um, deviating on their mission so I was really careful in the beginning to first work out who we are and what we do and and what you know, impact we're wanting to have. And so for the first six years, we didn't take funding from anybody really, like, you know, $1,000 here and there from a Rotary Club, which supported us in the beginning. But um, that that was all our own. We developed very slowly from the product sales that we were able to sell in Australia. So I think what you were mentioning about, um, you know, businesses and having that business sense when you're running a charity is absolutely essential. Sustainability. To exactly. Because like it's a heavily competed market trying to get donations mm. like it's the hardest market mm. in the world because there's so many of them everybody's so reluctant these days to part with their money mm. and everybody's then if somebody's going to part with the money and if, it, if it's substantial they're going to want to try and influence the outcomes and you get agendas mm. and you get i mean the number of in in mm. fighting i've seen in various charities is crazy and a lot of people want to run them for the power and like all of a sudden there's a power game going on it's just not for my not my go. It's just mm. not for me. I just I just I wouldn't be able to handle it. So your 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 objective is to build a sustainable business mm. that has the ultimate stakeholders that is the charity or the people who are going to get the dough. Exactly. So you know, so you've identified your stakeholders. You've identified your market. You've identified the the major objective of this business is to be sustainable. You've built something that looks like it's sustainable to me. You're being able to pay yourself something. So that's what's important. You you can't. You're 33. The, the, right now, um, seven women and all the beneficiaries of this, all the stakeholders, let's call them that, all the stakeholders can't afford something to go wrong with you right now because it's probably not quite sustainable yet. They can't afford it. So you have to have – you can't get burnt out, mm. which could happen, mm. um, you, which is, by the way, it's typical for entrepreneurs. You can't get burnt out. Um, you're not able to go and access investors, um, which is, you know, a lot of times it's typical for entrepreneurs. So you have to find a way of um, giving yourself some good balance you seem like you you seem pretty balanced to me uh, right oh, that's now. Great. Yeah, you seem that way. I mean, you know, you know, maybe you're like a duck, you know, paddling really fast under the water. And I just can't see all that, but uh, and just but gliding along the top, nice and smoothly. But um, where to from here? I mean, like, what are your goals? Do you set goals for yourself? Like, do you say like I want to double the revenue, or I want to double the productivity, or mm. where to? Yeah, definitely set goals, and I think um, a goal for us now because what we've set up is running now quite well on its own is um, the future of seven women is seed funding new enterprises. So we've got a few of those in the pipe works that we really want to see get up and running this year and next year. Other one, people's enterprises? Or uh, no, just um, enterprises in Nepal, such as like an eco farmhouse in one of the villages that we're working in where um, there's a lot of farmers and they're wanting to learn new technologies and um, basically improve what they're doing on their land. So to, to create an eco farmhouse and then um, similar to the cooking school, eventually do like a home day where tourists can come and learn from the locals and also share some skills as well. So I think the future of Seven Women is seed funding these new enterprises and um, that, that generate local income that are essentially businesses owned by the community. Right. So and, and in your goal setting, um, that sounds like a great goal. Um, who do you... Who mentors you who do you talk to about this stuff i mean who sort of runs a slide rule over this is it your engineer father <laughs> pardon the pun <laughs> yeah. um anyone who who will listen, listen. um no, but what I've do had, you do for this i mean because yeah. everybody listening to this show they're sort of always looking for somebody who's going to give them feedback so where do you get your feedback from yeah oh that's a really good question because i think as an entrepreneur you you it's really essential that you have great people around you that mm. can bounce ideas off and that's over the years that's changed form we've had you know different people on the board and um, different volunteers in the organization with different expertise so I've always um, been fortunate to have great people around me and how do you find your people for the board um, 
Well, the first thing is they need to have the right intention. They, they need to really want to see it grow and succeed and have a passion for, um, you know, that empowerment kind of approach and a bit of an understanding around it. And then, you know, expertise in a certain area that I, that I lack, which um, there's a lot of areas that I you know, lacked, especially in the beginning, um, that I had no idea about that I really needed to ask advice from different people to, to grow that area of the business. So, but you're obviously not advertising on seek.com for directors. No, but so it, how, just, how, how do you actually find, do they come to you or do you, is there a community of people who are looking to help out like this? Yeah, I think it's, um, for me, it's just been over time and people that I've met in different places and, and building a relationship with them and then seeing that it would be a good fit for them to get involved in a more formal role or even just someone that, uh, our first funder, um, Cooper Investors in Melbourne, it was, I met, um, Peter Cooper at a um, young Foundation for Young Australians, a course that I was involved in there, and he was a speaker and just really, um, yeah, really could relate to him and it was very humble but very successful. And then I just asked if we could catch up for a, a coffee. So I caught up with him, you know, once every couple of months and then the, you know, never ever thinking in, in mind that he would ask me to come and speak f- to his philanthropy team. And then I think the second year he said, you know, come and talk to the team. And they were our first big backers and they've backed us ever since. So um, just people like that that are around and that you meet and that you really feel a connection with and um, then, you know, ask them for advice or get them involved in a bigger role. The energy of an entrepreneur is, um, uh, to me, it's uh, nearly a proverb. Um, <laughs> you know, where do you get your energy from? I mean, uh, what drives you? What, mm. what makes you get up in the morning? I mean, is it is it the outcomes or? Mm. For me, it's um, it's the people and, of course, it goes up and down the energy levels as mm. well. It's the, it's the people that working in this area, you – are surrounded by people who are, you know, have that generosity of spirit, which really, you know, gives me energy because they're just awesome people. And um, yeah, so that really drives me. And also, I've done, been doing a lot of speaking engagements last year as well, internationally, and seeing audiences of mainly young people who are so eager to make a difference and so eager to work for companies in future that. Um, do have an impact as well as make profit. Um, I got really fired up at the UN um, in 2016. We won an, an award for responsible business and I learned at the UN about the sustainable development goals but in more detail and learned that there's 169, you know, because I was thinking these there's 17 of these goals that the institutions around the world and nations have agreed on. How do they kind of agree on these goals and, and how do people participate in achieving them? So they're not just, you know, these big things that that never get achieved. And um, so I learnt that 169 underlying targets for those goals and 164 relate to business. So basically with without the um, inputs of businesses, they won't be achieved. So that, that really inspired me to get out there and inspire young people that they can start their own businesses and make a difference um, through those businesses. And what... And what- what do you do for R and R? I mean, what I mean, I mean, this sort of thing can be tiring. Um, you can get depleted quite easily, and you can get a bit dejected, I guess, um, easily too, because you you're sort of lifting everybody else up. And what lifts you? Because you got to you got to find something that lifts you up too. So, what lifts you up, or what do you do? Mm. I mean, what do you, where, where do you R and R? Do you sort of take off to uh, I don't know. Manly Beach. Yeah, Manly Beach, yeah. Do you <laughs> so, go and sit yeah. in the cabin somewhere on top of a mountain? What do you do? Yeah. Um, every Jan we go to Manly with the family. So I'm up here now with the family um, having a holiday. So normally I do a tour in December and then fly straight back to Manly, which is amazing to be around the ocean. I love being around the water. It makes me think clearly and, you know, reflect. Um, yeah, doing things like going to the movies, you know, it takes you completely out of your world into someone else's and, and catching up with friends that have nothing to do with seven women, no interest in charity, um, <laughs> you know, friends like that, that you can just completely disconnect. Do you have and, to be disciplined about that? Um, or can I'm, you run yourself into the ground? I'm I'm a bit of a taskmaster, so I, I do have to be disciplined, and I'm definitely going to be working on that this year, you know, yeah. have, have a bit of a work-life balance, because when you're a taskmaster, you can, yeah, just go and go and go. So I'm seeing you at your freshest. <laughs> Yeah. In the early in the morning. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. whilst you're yeah. in Manly yeah. on your R&R. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, because I, mean, I, I, mean, I know what it's like as an entrepreneur, you know, you, you can drive yourself into the ground pretty easily and no one can tell you not to because you basically, the, the biggest default 
position of an entrepreneur is they do that and they don't mm. listen to anybody, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and uh, so you've got to have these automatic systems yeah. uh, whereby you look after yourself. Or a hobby or a sport that you, you yeah, know. Something's got to take your mind off everything yeah. and, uh, and stop buzzing about it. Mm. Um, it's not enough to get excited about doing what you're doing. Because, mm. I mean, that's that's great, but it sh- sort of works on the nervous system, shrivels the nerves up, and entrepreneurs get this all the time. Yeah. And wh- I reckon one of the reasons why a lot of entrepreneurs fail is they just run out of energy and mm. um, something goes wrong mm. during that period. They, they lose. An entrepreneur's got to be – a good entrepreneur is always someone who can pivot and change and pivot and change. I mean, And I don't mean a big pivot or a big change. I just mean it's like the smallest step to the side. It, it could be millimetres in mm. the business sense. Um but you're always changing a little bit just to suit the conditions. And uh, at the end of the you know, period, you've changed a lot and you don't even realise that you've been making these changes. But that's that's a, a, a really energetic thing you have to do. That takes a lot around, a lot away from you. So, And before you know it, you're, you're exhausted and, and you're in a totally different spot. And if you lose that energy, if you lose that, that uh, drive, that physical drive, the physical ability, you won't make those little changes and you'll be doing the same thing you've always done and the thing will fall apart. Yeah. Um, so as an entrepreneur, do you, do you, do you experience this exhaustion, mm. especially yeah, travelling? Really, really good question. I, um, everyone was warning me about burnout for a very long time and I never never had it, um, but I, I did experience um some form of it i'm not sure if it's you know what exactly burnout is but um my yeah my grandma passed away when i was studying in sweden and that was really when i first felt like oh my god i'm really burnt out like i'm trying to continue with the energy i had and you know continue um managing things and um yeah i just need to kind of have a break and do nothing so yeah, so I kind of continued on with the plans. I, I had an internship in Argentina and Myanmar and, you know, was on the move during that period and came back to Australia and that's when I really started to learn the value of, you know, setting boundaries and having time off and, and just to kind of detach. And in terms of um, adapting, you know, what you're talking about to the situation, I think that's crucial for entrepreneurs to be able to do that as well. I think Nepal has taught me how to be someone who is, you know, acts to their highest excitement. This is a quote that I love, but not attached to the outcome because in Nepal, you, you, you can't, you know, nothing goes to plan or very very little goes to plan. So you really need to um, be a good listener as well and listen to uh, what's happening on the ground and, and what are the issues and then find solutions that might not be the traditional solutions but, you know, adapted to that culture and even the even my tour company when we take groups over to Nepal, um, the Nepali culture is to, to say yes and then, you know, maybe it changes. So it's um, running a tour and a viable business that relies on everything going to plan on the ground is also a big task but we've we've nailed it now but it took a long time to get there. You've nailed it for now. For now, yeah, exactly. I think it's nailed it for now. And, and <laughs> so I won't get ahead of myself. No, no, totally. But and it's, and it's good to recognise that. Uh, I have one final question, and you know, I hope you don't mind me asking this one. But like, um, single mindedness is an important thing in, in being successful in what you're doing. And it's, uh, I would say, at a personal level for a personal life, um, what point do you sort of say, okay, uh, it's time to stop all this. I'm going to stop and have a family of my own, or settle mm-hmm. down. I mean, what about that sort of arm wrestle? Mm. You're only young at the moment, but like, you know, there's going to be some stage. Jeez, give me a break. No. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question too. Well, um, because people listening to this, there's a lot of people driven. I mean, but what I want to know is, what I like to find out myself is, what do other people do? Like, when do you sort of say, okay, now it's time to smell the roses a little bit, I'm going to have a kid or... Whatever, mm. you know. Yeah. I've just noticed people kind of, you know, asking more of those questions recently, the last 12 months. Uh, last year was a big year of travel and to to be uprooting so often and taking off, it, it is very disruptive to that sort of plan in future. And, um, you know, a lot of friends say, oh, we're not we're not sure you know where you are at any one time whether you're in Australia or overseas so um so that's kind of the plan for this year I've got more um 
speaking gigs and things within Australia. So the plan is to kind of hang around here a bit more and develop it from Australia because I can now because it's up and running over in Nepal and the tour company is um, now able to run without me physically being there. So I think that will come with just that, you know, focused attention on having more balance and not having to be so hands-on in the business but take a bit of a step back. I always take the view too, by the way, is that it's all very well for people to say those things to you um, and to anyone who's trying to establish a business. But the time when this will happen is when it's the time. Mm. And, um, you, you know, you have to do what you have to do until that time arrives. Mm. And in your case, I'm glad to hear that that time is sort of just about here. But um, until it's here, you just keep doing what you're doing. Mm. That's the only way you can do it. I mean, otherwise, you there is no outcome here. There's no solution. You just have to do what you've got to do until you can go and do something else. Mm. So it's all very well for people to talk about life balance. I have a view on that. Um, uh, life balance means doing everything you've got to do until you don't have to do everything you've got to do and you go do something else and you can balance it up. Life balance means balance over life. Mm. It doesn't mean balance every day, balance every month or balance every, if you can do that, it's great or balance, but generally balance every month or every week, or month, year, whatever. That usually means you've got a job with somebody and they're getting a wage every week. And um, you can structure your year up and pre-book mm. a holiday in wherever you want to go to in um, July for the following June. Mm. That's Some people choose that life. Mm. But if you're an entrepreneur, you don't know what you're doing from month to month. So, And until you get a rhythm, then yeah. you can start to do the sorts of things you're talking about. Mm. Okay, I always give everyone a chance to ask me one question. So what's your question to me? <laughs> uh, great. So... The the whole responsible tourism uh, topic is really um, on trend at the moment. It's, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of radio interviews on that topic recently, and dangers of volunteerism and um, you know impact travel. So that's that's kind of exactly what the tour company was created for six years ago. And I'm really looking to kind of ride that trend and position ourselves in at the forefront of that because it's exactly what the tours deliver so um, how would you go about that apart from you know doing what we're doing at the moment which is you know the, the, the interviews and talking about it um, in the speaking engagements how would you really kind of yeah ride that wave that's an interesting question I mean I, I wouldn't change doing what you're doing now I mean it's it, you what you really got to, to ride a wave to, to, to ride the rising tide to sort of get up on top of the tide um, there is a rising tide about for this sort of stuff. Um, is to means that you've got to find out where the people who want to participate in that rising tide, in other words, your consumers, your your demand, what they listen to and what they watch. YouTube, all the usual social, mm. um, and and or speaking engagements. Then they're they're uh, they are cheerleaders and totally converted already. So they're just looking for where do I uh, attach myself to. Um, there's lots of lifestyle television shows on at the moment. I mean, I've done mm. some pretty crazy stuff, but I've actually, where I've seen a rising tide, I've actually invented television sh- a television show mm. and uh, do a TV show. Um, that may not be for everybody, but mm. it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, if you're a reasonably creative person, if there's a niche there and you present well and you have a good experience in the area, um, it just might be one of the things that the someone like Foxtel might be looking for, mm. like a, a, small, a short doco on... Uh, why you do these sorts of things. And if it's a rising tide, if it actually is a social phenomenon, which it is, then I can assure you that the television stations need to build content around that sort of stuff because they know that the social phenomenon will, I mean, there's an audience out there which they're not catering to. Now, I don't know where this sort of stuff appears anywhere, which is how YouTube operates. Mm. So for me, a really strong media campaign and I'm not talking about 30-second ads on television, but a really strong media campaign in new, in new media and in old media would be the way to really own the space. Mm. But I'm a bit that type of guy. Like, I want to own the space. I want to be the one. Mm. Um, so I, I, would, I, I would get quite aggressive. And I spend two or three years building a television show. before it, Then I'll run around trying to get someone to buy it and produce it. And that doesn't always – just mm. – and it, and it, 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 I get knockbacks all the time. Um, and but eventually, what I'm betting on is that the audience that I want to talk to is the same audience that a, a broadcaster wants to talk mm. to, or YouTubers want to listen to. Mm. Now, do you do any of that stuff now, YouTube? 
we could definitely improve. We've got yeah, we've got little clips up, but there's no there's yeah, no got a following. proper strategy behind yeah, it. Yeah, but I'm um, talking about a proper strategy. Oh no, yeah, we don't have a proper strategy behind it. So there's definitely, I'd love to focus on that. Yeah, because and how do I get to people? Who is successful now? Who's a good model of that now? It doesn't necessarily have to be in your space, but who mm. has got a good model of that that you can replicate? Mm. Copying, there's nothing wrong with copying, and I don't mean plagiarize, but I mean copying structures. And, or look at a good working model and then convert it into what you're doing. Mm. I mean, and, and then then maybe, especially now that you can spend more time in Australia, I mean, that you can actually build it up. It takes time, but you build up, build up, build up, build up. And there'll be a lot of, again, pivoting and be a lot of experimentation. Oh, shit, that didn't work or that does work. I'll do a bit more of that. It, what the format will look like, I've got no idea. But mm. you're looking for a format that you own that's yours, that's unique. And it talks to the audience that you're talking about is on trend or trending. Mm. So and 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 it involves a, a, a aggregation of stuff too because you know you have to be prepared. This stuff takes a lot of time. You're going to have to be tweeting it. You're going to have to do the whole thing, Facebooking it, Instagramming it. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought Instagram would be just brilliant in your your game. Um, mm. And you go then you go do a, a talk and let's say there's hundred people there behind you that you you put up all your images. In the beginning and at the bottom of every image, in the beginning of the, the talk and the end of the talk, you have your Twitter handle, you have uh, your YouTube address, the whole lot, and All you right, just we'll push people into it. And then those 100 people that like it, they might say, oh, I saw this cool thing to tell somebody else, and and so it grows. Mm. Um, but like a little, even if you could do a little you know, 30-minute doco on this stuff, just handheld stuff like you know the Blair Witch Project, which was, you know, unbelievably brilliant in terms of the numbers of people watched it um, was a handheld mm. um, and you the first one and uh, you know if you could I don't know if you have the have any, know anybody who's wants to come on a who's a, a producer or a, a filmographer or something like that who wants to go on one of your tours mm. and just say look I want, I'm going to be on this one would you like to come on with it it's, I'll, I'll, you know if, if your mm. charity can pay for it Um just bring your camera along. All you need to do is, uh, and they might like that. They might love that because it's their their way of donating to a charity. Mm. As long as it's not going to cost them anything, and they're getting the experience of it, and uh, getting to interview you, and getting to interview the seven women or the five, you know, the whole thing, mm. and then try and package it up, put it together. I mean, it's not your area of expertise. We get someone who's expert in this stuff, and then put it up into the put it up to the networks. But maybe nothing happens. Mm. But all that can go on YouTube anyway. But maybe nothing happens from all this, but maybe mm. something does happen. You just never know when someone's interested in what your story is. Yeah. And it's got to be about your story mm. and and their story. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, great ideas. Thanks, Mark. You're welcome. Thanks yeah. for coming in. Thanks. Thanks.